Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. And I'm Amy Kraft. And Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, and educators. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. So this podcast is one of the ways we do that. Uh, Amy and I uh, discuss some topics from the past week or maybe the past month related to diversity in, uh, in children's media. Um, and we also have a weekly newsletter that goes out uh, every Sunday. And really um, what we want to do with this podcast and with that newsletter is get people talking. We want people to share this podcast, share those articles with, with like-minded folks and keep the discussion going. Um, every week we also try to have a guest from the children's media um, industry. And this week we have a fantastic guest, Carol Kane. She's the founder and publisher of Girl Gone Travel, a fantastic travel blog where she documents her trips both in the U.S. and abroad with her family. And um, she has a ton to share, so definitely stay tuned for that. But we're going to start this week at the movies. So, Amy, I think you had a couple things we wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, I got to see Kubo and the Two Strings with the kids this week. Nice. They had a day off from school already. <laughs> that sounds about right for <laughs> New York. We went to the movies. Um, and it is beautiful. I mean, Leica's animation is always stunning. Coraline's right. one of our favorite animated films. And mm-hmm. this movie is no exception. Yeah. Um, you haven't seen it yet. No, right? I, I haven't seen it. What? Um, I Obviously, I've seen the trailer. But what's the... Um, the overall plot and like what age group is it targeting? I don't think I totally was, was getting it from the trailer. Uh, what's phenomenal, phenomenal about it is my six year old and my 11 year old both really liked it. Oh, so wow. it's sort of like that, like broad elementary age group. Okay. okay. It, there are scary bits. So mm-hmm. younger kids, you know, like your, your guy would be too young for <laughs> yeah, it I think so. <laughs> um, because there are, there are very sort of like dark, things that happened but my sure. six-year-old was totally fine he kept saying in the movie this is the best movie ever so <laughs> take it from a six-year-old right. um yeah and i actually went into it knowing very little about it because you watch the trailer and you still don't know much about it right and i think from the trailer what i didn't get is how magical this movie is so there's this boy kubo mm-hmm. and he lives in a cave with his mother his, we find out in the very opening, his grandfather had stolen his eye. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Like, that's why he's wearing an eye patch. Um, and his mom keeps him in hiding from her sisters and her father. And this is like a whole magical gods thing. It's the Moon King is her father. Um, and so Kubo can't go out at night. Um, because then the Moon King will find him. Um, wow. So early on, guess what happens? <laughs> <laughs> stays out at night. Um, and then, you know, they're found. He's got to go on the run. But there's sort of like this epic storytelling that, like, um, you'll like this as a Harry Potter fan. It's right. like armor that he has to collect that sort of felt a little like the horcrux hunt uh, like that if you can collect the sword the breastplate and the helmet you can be protected from the moon king gotcha. and so he goes on this quest um to to get this armor um he's joined by a monkey 
and a beetle who is a cursed man, like former samurai uh, that's now a beetle. Huh. Um, and it's magical. So like, you know, you see him with this instrument, but what happens when he plays this instrument is that's a magic making device. And hmm. um, he interacts using the music. He interacts with origami and the origami like comes to life and does the wow. animation is so stunning. Like I just, everyone should go see it just to watch this beautiful, beautiful animation. So does this feel like a, a setup for like a franchise or is this definitely no, like a one-off? Um, I just read recently that Laika is not interested in doing sequels at all. Oh. So it's like, it's kind yeah. of great because it means that they can keep telling all yeah. these different stories, box trolls, paranormal, Carol, Coraline, you know, like they, they do have like a really wonderful set of films. Right. Right. Um, and so is this, um, an original story or is it a, like, um, based on a mythological tale, so to speak. I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> I believe it's an original story, but I think it really draws on traditional Japanese art and yeah, myths. Yeah, and, the origami, yeah so. I, that we should dig deep, deeper into that. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, the, the one thing, and we had posted about this on Facebook last week, is the casting. Mm-hmm kind of throw you out of it so right. here like it's set in japan it's like all this like japanese myth and culture and you know the actors playing it are matthew mcconaughey shirley saron and art parkinson who we know better as Rickon stark right. um, and from game of thrones for yeah, yeah. <laughs> come here i know our game of right thrones. right <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting. We we had posted um, the Raps interview with director Travis Knight. And in it, you know, to like his credit, and he's right, like they've had like nice diversity in their films and, you know, what we're seeing on screen, you know, certainly represents that. But it's something we come back to time and time again is the voiceover casting. Yeah. Like that's because you can't see these people does that mean, you know, it doesn't matter? Right. I think, yeah, I think the, basically, you know, the the argument they're trying to make, right, is the story they're telling is clearly not one that, um, that you see that often. And so, like, you know, the, the argument being there's diversity there and there's diversity in the stories they tell, but behind so the camera. Off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but so I feel like this happens a lot when um, Travis Knight defends it as like we need actors who can tell a great story. So it was colorblind casting to um, to do that. Like we just wanted the best actors. But isn't it funny how whenever that defense is used, it's because you ended up with an all white all white cast. cast. <laughs> so he wanted an excellent cast, but in the same interview, you know, he was saying like it actually. He says, I fully believe representation and inclusion matters. So when we were casting the film, it was important that our human characters are actually actors of Japanese ancestry. For the other characters, the gods and the talking animals, that wasn't the prime consideration. So hmm. that's a nice thing to say. However, what about Kubo, your lead? Yeah. Um, also, I don't want to give too much away, but all of these gods and 
um, animals have human ties to them. And because of that, like, aren't they of Japanese ancestry, too? And if you're saying that that was very important to you, it seems to me that the whole cast should have been Japanese. You know, it's like, so I feel like he's saying two things at once. So it's like, it's important, but it was important enough to give to the minor actors that all have like two or three lines for anyone who has like a real meaty part. We didn't do that. (laughs) Yeah. We weren't going to bet the movie on those Japanese (laughs) actors. Are you crazy? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it's interesting too. Like I I always wonder about this because we do cast like A-list actors in animated films. So there, there must be something about this is what puts butts in the seat so to speak. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, just like when they're doing press, right? Like, um, you know, they're going around and, and they're creating the buzz. So like, yeah, if there's an A-list actor, I think it's like just a cycle, right? You put yourself in this position and I'm sure like, um, you know, there's probably, there's probably tons of actors that they could have found of Japanese descent or Japanese actors that could, that could do this role just fine. But right. there's also probably like they don't have the best agents, so they like you know can't get the they don't know exactly those parts. Something tells me like Matthew McConaughey walks in and is like, "Hey, I'm interested in this role." Like they aren't going to be like, "Oh, we can't fit you in," right? Like, right. Right. So um, I think there's exactly. a challenge there, but I think it goes back to what you said. Like it can't just be um, like it's it's fantastic they're telling the story, um, but at the same time, like everything behind the cameras is, is important too. And, and voiceover is a piece of that. And, yeah. um, it touches on everything we talk about with the toolkit, um, in terms of how, who are you hiring? Who is your voiceover? What does it sound like? How are you finding it in your network? So, um, but we have a better story yeah. on that, right? Speaking <laughs> of colorblind casting, let's talk about the the upcoming Wrinkle in Time movie. Are you right. a Wrinkle in Time fan? Did, yeah, did you so I am. I I read um the I read the three books, but um, gun to my head, I have not read them again probably since fifth grade. But I did. I do remember that I enjoyed them a lot. So yeah, I missed them as a kid, but I read them as an adult. Gotcha. Um, actually, I read them after reading Rebecca Stead's book When You Reach Me. If you have oh, a chance, yeah, yeah, I've heard of this. Amazing, yeah. but it heavily references Wrinkle in Time. Gotcha. So I read Wrinkle in Time right after. It's a it's a beautiful pair of books to read together. Okay. Okay. Anyway, Wrinkle in Time is being directed for Disney um, by Anna DuVernay. So like yeah. that already was great news. It's like, yes, please, let's give our awesome women directors and right. women this great, meaty movie. Um, you know, and so the casting news has been um, released this week that Meg, the main character, is going to be played by Storm Reed, um, who's an African-American girl. She was in 12 Years a Slave. Um, oh, right, right. Yeah, like, she was. An American girl movie. Um, yeah, so it's like very exciting news. And yeah. then, okay, we also learned that um, Oprah Winfrey is in the role of Mrs. Witch. Right. Reese Witherspoon is Mrs. What's It, and Mindy Kaling isn't Mrs. Who. Yeah, so it's, yeah. I feel like that that's an amazing trio. Although I will say, I remember those characters as being much older than Reese Witherspoon and Mindy Kaling. That sounds right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like slowly coming back to me. I remember them being a little bit older. Um, I was I liked how they did it. They sort of did it on Twitter, right? They um, they referenced each other. 
Yes, think, yes. Um, they had like a whole little Twitter yeah, chain. Yeah, which was probably well planned out. But um, I like that. And then, um, yeah, always good to see uh, Mindy Kaling doing um, is in on this question. I, my question would be, how come it took so long to get this book turned into a movie? Um, I mean, this book's been around for what? 20 years at least? Can I give you my cynical guess on that? Yes. yes. Female protagonist. Ah. (laughs) Walked right into that, Amy, didn't I? I don't know. I mean, who knows the legal, like, were the rights tied up in something? You never know. Yeah, for sure. It could be. Although, honestly, like, I would watch 20 movies with just Hermione, like, going to the library. So, um, I might be in the minority there. Um, but yeah, I think, um, that, that's might, might've been part of it, but it's good to hear and like awesome that they have this female African-American actor being the lead. Um, and and I think it's like the data always says, like, you know, if you put women and people of color behind the camera, it affects what comes out. Yeah. So definitely seeing that in action on this. Yeah, I think, I mean, just to go back to the colorblind class thing, when you were talking about it, it sort of made me think of uh, Master of None on Netflix, where Aziz Ansari, um, you know, creator of the show, and um, his writing partner, whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, also, he's Asian as well, and sort Mm -hmm. of, they said, yeah, we did colorblind casting, it, um, it just turned out that, you know, these were the best, we felt like this was the best fit, and well, guess what, It's, it's, you know, the two of the main actors, obviously Aziz, and then the other actress, his best friend in the show, is an African American um, actress. So yep. yeah, I t- I totally agree with you. It um, you know if that's that's what happens, they and they start looking in their network. Like I mean, <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, this was uh, this was welcoming news and exciting. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it wins the weekend when it comes out. Do, do we have a release date yet? I don't think so. No. I don't think no. so. I think it's sometime right. next year. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, good news. We'll definitely have um, that article in a couple articles of, of about that in, uh, in the newsletter this week. Um, the other newsy thing we wanted to talk about was uh, Gwen Stefani. Um, there's a new Nickelodeon show coming out. It's called Cuckoo Harajuku. Um, Harajuku, yeah. Yeah. I hope I'm saying that right. So... Um, this, I think, was sent around to us, um, and then I saw a bunch of articles, I think, on Facebook. There were some postings about it. So I, the, the way this started, so she has this new um, Nickelodeon show coming out. Um, it's already gotten some criticism because really what it's based on is back in 2004, which um, seems like a long time ago. Um <laughs> This it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah I guess it's the audience a decade ago. The right. show wasn't alive yet. So. Right, right, exactly. Good point. Um, Gwen Stefani came out with her solo album um, that referenced Harajuku, which is a place in uh, Japan and actually is like known for... Um, it, it basically has a certain look to it, or I guess at the time... Um, that uh, there was a style coming out of Harajuku which um, which caught Gwen Stefani's eye and so she referenced it in one of her songs um, which I guess would not have been that big a deal but then um, she then hired four Japanese 
girls to essentially use as props, which um, they were not allowed to speak. And um, I guess they were, th there's some confusion. Either they were not allowed to speak or if they were going to speak, they only spoke in Japanese. Um, right. Yeah. And then, Time and Salon have both said that they were contractually obligated to speak in oh, Japanese. Okay. Only speak in if Japanese. They spoke, so, gotcha. Despite gotcha. having maybe been American. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so she named these four girls Love, Angel, Music, and Baby. So um, this was uh, nauseating as I was reading it. And then I found out that then she created a fashion line around this and then some perfume as well, all built around this Harajuku um, idea. So um, now they have the show coming out as well. And did you watch the trailer, Amy? I did it? watch the trailer. <laughs> I see. It got caught in your it's, head, right? Uh, it's very yeah, catchy. yeah. It's got like a little theme song to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it has like the look of that tweeny girl. Like, it's interesting. They all have the giant heads and the tiny bodies. And despite being different ethnicities, they all kind of look exactly the same and seem to wow. share similar personalities. I um, see. But I think like you're describing of like the props of these four women, it should, the white girl is very much the leader of mm -hmm. this Harajuku group you know so and i think that's the problem people had with Gwen stefani as it was happening too yeah. so as you're making this for kids it's not like we really appreciate this culture and let's let that really shine it's like no how can this prop up you know the white right. character and gwen stefani and you know so i think i've been reading a lot of the comments on this thing and there are some people have said like it doesn't even matter because Harajuku culture is based, like, was inspired by Western culture. So how could you possibly be appropriating this Japanese culture if they appropriated Western culture first, which I don't really buy. Um, hmm. You know, it, it's just so interesting. But the fact that she doesn't have a great track record. Yeah, like you, I think you that's and I were a talking bigger a thing. Bit about that. Right, right. Like the whole, like, okay. I don't know. I'm not sure I totally believe that from the comments section. And Amy, I've told you so many times, don't read the comments. Um, <laughs> you know, she, her track record's not great. Like they said a couple of years ago, I guess No Doubt had to pull a video um, for the song Looking Hot because it was offensive to Native Americans. And, you know, I remember back in the 90s when she had a bindi on her head, which, um, you know, is, is sort of a, a sacred symbol in Hindu culture. So, um, you know, she, she just clearly doesn't totally get it. And I think, um, I, I, I think in 2000, like, like I said, when I was reading this and it's 2016 about what she did in 2004, it's like so nauseating. And, and I just can't imagine if she tried to do that now, if she had these four people walking around with her, but I guess they're making this tv show right so right. i guess it's a um it's it's from the show does it seem like the other four can actually talk or they only speak in japanese they they talk <laughs> you know they talk but they talk in like they they really all sound alike too right. so like it'll be interesting to see like do they get personalities that really shine through yeah. i have to say like feminist me isn't so cracked on this show either also yeah. because of how they look like it looks like they do have nice adventures and it's mm -hmm. a little actiony but at the end of the day they're rock stars right. i'm also a little um 
influence, I just finished reading a novel by Ruth Ozeki called For the Time Being, which is a lovely novel for adults. I highly recommend it. <laughs> but in it, one of the characters, this teenage girl now, spends a lot of time in Harajuku and in this French maid cafe where, uh-huh. like, you know, this is a thing where, like, these young Japanese women dress up dress as up French, like maids, French maids as, like, a fetish you know, saying it's like, it's cute. And there's like the cute fashion part of Harajuku. But then this book gets a little bit into the fetish sex trade part of what was happening there. So like, just knowing that like, this is so fetishized too, like by making this as a show for girls, you know, it's, yeah, I I think it's tricky, you know? Right, right. I, I agree with you. I think, um, as a parent, I think you'd, I'd just be a little concerned. And um, I think the um, the other piece of it, I, I think when you go back to the cultural appropriation, is sort of like what you want to see artists do. Because I think this is like this discussion is sort of, you know, always happening in publishing, right? Book publishing, right. where the industry is 80% white. And when you say the industry, meaning editors, publishers, like the entire, like not just authors, right? Right. And so right. there's this push to get more diversity into um, into books. And then there's been this discussion of like a, a white author trying, not trying, but an, a white author sort of writing um, a character who's not white. And there's, um, you know, there's been pushback on that and discussion. And so like, I think as an artist, what, Gwen Stefani sort of has a responsibility to do is like, look, it is to not make, not turn this into like dress up, right? Into foreign costumes. And like, you know, Katy Perry got knocked for this. I think Miley Cyrus has gotten knocked for this. Um, It it is about, you should be having a conversation with the community, right? Right. And And a culture is not a costume. Right. And having them get involved in the creation of the you know whatever you're creating whatever the artistic piece is and um i don't think it's as easy like the other thing that i think bothers me is like when she's been asked about it she's been very dismissive and it's sort of like well you know everybody has a right to their opinion and like it was just sort of a fun thing and then she like sort of throws up her hands and um you know i don't think it's as easy to say that like you weigh every single opinion the same right if like you're portraying Asian characters and then you, um, or you have these Asian people following you around and then numerous Asian people are saying like, look, this is kind of offensive. Like this is not something you should be doing. It looks like a minstrel show. Like that's not the same as someone, right? Like you can't just weigh these two opinions as the same thing. And I think right. when, when she makes a comment like that, that's sort of what she's doing. And, um, and I think it's that thing of like, but I love this culture. Like I really like it. Like, yeah. so I understand what the, the deal is because I love it. And I'm just showing that I love it yeah. and to understand the difference of, and I think it's hard to know when you've crossed the line of mm-hmm. appreciation into appropriation. Agreed. Agreed. I, I I think at times it can be it can be challenging. Um, I think when they make comments like that, it sometimes can also come off as sort of condescending. Um, you know, as like the culture so cute, etc. So, um, right. I agree. I, I think um, there's something to be said for research, right? Like exactly. It, um, and, and bringing people to the table. Right. Exactly. Particularly and, if and, you're going to make a show for kids. Right. And yeah, and forcing yourself to understand it. So, 
Um, right. So yeah, I think um, this it, it'll be interesting to see what kind of reviews it gets and sort of how long um, it stays on on the air and maybe the stories that they tell. So hopefully right. they do. A good it job might with be it. great. Like right. it's too soon to know, it might be great. <laughs> right. We will revisit. Fair exactly. Enough, Amy. We will revisit. <laughs> All right, great. So, um, so that's going to cover it for the news this week. We, like I said, we have a great interview coming up with Carol Kane. So stay tuned for that. As we mentioned, we have an awesome guest today. Travel writer Carol Kane joins us. She's the founder and publisher of an amazing travel blog called Girl Gone Travel. Carol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us, just to get started, how did you get into travel writing? Um, I started, you know, I was I had chosen to stay home uh, with my kids after a career in uh, public relations. Uh, they were, the youngest one at the time were maybe one and two, um, and then my oldest was maybe 10. And um, I just, uh, I started writing because I had a lot of family out of, out of New York where I lived. And we, you know, I would start looking for things to do with the kids in the city after having worked, you know, coming into the household and taking care of the kids. I actually didn't really know what to do with them. So, <laughs> so you know, I just kind of like, okay, well, what do you do with kids, you know, during the day? Right. And right. Um, I started looking into things to do with them in the city. And there was a lot of content. Blogging already had started to take off. Uh, this was in 2009 and uh, 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I noticed that gentrification had taken on full force to the extent where searching for something to do with the kids consisted of either spending $100 an hour for an indoor play area or, you know, hosting $300 cupcake parties <laughs> or... You know, these really expensive... Right, that sounds like uh, New York, yeah. Yeah, experiences that I didn't grow up... I'm from Brooklyn, and right. my my family were Dominican immigrants. My grandparents immigrated to the United States, and uh, they bought a brownstone in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, just working factory jobs. You know, they were able to save up their money and buy a brownstone. No, <laughs> Yeah, and you know, my, my grandmother was a seamstress, my grandfather fixed radios and TVs, saved up their money, bought a brownstone, and then like every, you know, Latin family, everybody moved in. Right. Um, and that's how I grew up. And so when I was looking to do something with my kids, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't how I grew up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then I decided that I was going to take matters into my own hands. So it was a, it was a little bit of a of a, the rebellious spirit that I have, and also kind of like the anger of seeing my city represented in a way that didn't appeal to so many families like myself that live there. Right. Um, and so I started I writing. I discovering your blog early on because you were living in Washington Heights at the time, which is exactly. my name where I live too. And it'd be like, yes, Washington Heights, what can we do here? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And at the time, it was New York City Mama. And uh, I would just go out. I would I would pack the kids up in the double stroller and just, you know, leave in the morning and come back in the afternoon um, just exploring everything that there was to do in the city um, that either was free or not expensive or whatever it may be. And 
I just started writing that, and and uh, there was a huge audience for it because, you know, again, it's a community that is not often spoken to. Um, it's not sexy, you know, to to uh, to talk to families with little kids that don't have a lot of money, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're out there, and so that that's kind of how I started. Before, you know, then eventually it, it took off and I started traveling overseas more and all that. But I really um, was writing about the things that I loved the most, which was New York City and living there. Yeah, and it's interesting. You've written a little bit about sticking out like a sore thumb in the travel writing industry. Can you talk more about that and sort of like the need for diversity, not just in like families without, with not a lot of money, but more in general? Yeah, I... I um, so one of the things that I've done, and I've and I've struggled with this, you know, in over the years, I've questioned myself, and I've had my own sense of like insecurities. It's just thinking, well, am I saying too much? Am I too um, too outspoken? Too uh, too vocal? Uh, you know, like I try to try to sell or try to promote a destination or. Um, an experience, but I also want to, for lack of a better word, you know, want to keep it real. Right. Yeah. And that's not, you know, always something that uh, destination or people that that sell the destination or represent a destination um, appreciate or want. So I, you know, in a good example, um, I you I had the opportunity to keynote for TBEX, which is the Travel Bloggers Exchange conference that happens twice a year mm-hmm. and um, it's one of the largest uh, travel bloggers kind of conference and I keynoted for them and in my keynote I sort of spoke about an experience that I had hiking in um, in Colorado and I talked about the fact that um, it was a 13,000 some summit that we were doing and I was slow because I'm not a skinny girl you know and <laughs> You go to Colorado and it's like all these like really fit, really, you know, kind of like this is what I do for breakfast. Um, it's like the REI catalog going up there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's an, exactly, exactly. And so, but I love hiking. As a matter of fact, after this um, interview, my family and I are going hiking. And so it's something that I do regularly. But I was slow and the altitude and the oxygen, everything. Um, and the second day when we were actually going to re- reach the summit, the, the guide... Um, and a couple of the people were complaining that I was slowing them down. We had to get to the summit before a certain time because there might have been a storm coming, all that stuff. Um, and so he basically was like, you're not you're not going up there. Like, you have to stay behind because you're slowing us down. And, wow. and meanwhile, you know, it had been two days and I had been struggling physically, but it never occurred to me that I wouldn't make it to the summit. Like, that wasn't right. something that I wasn't going to do. And... Um, I yeah I cried and I was mad and uh, he left me with another guide and when they went they started going up she was like well we can go you know walk and take our time back to the base and I was like no we're we're going we're going up to this to that's this right <laughs> and uh, and I you know so we had to they were like we're gonna be there and then we have to make it down by eleven um, in the morning and so I I made it up I don't know how I did it. Um, but I made it up. I got to the summit at a, at eleven exactly, um, and it was the story that I was talking about in my keynote about 
how I don't look like the REI, <laughs> right? I'm not the person that that media would pr- would use, the image of the person that media would use to advertise that kind of experience. Um, but that doesn't mean that I couldn't do it or that someone like me couldn't do it or would be interested in trying to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my, my thing. And then the next couple of days later, I or, or maybe I want to say like a month later, actually, I met up with the PR person who represents the destination that I had been in. And, and other PR people had gotten in touch with her, um, called her and said, Carol did this talk and she mentioned your destination and this was her story. You better talk to her about that. Mm-hmm. You better, you better let her know what's up. That was not cool. Um, so here was this inspirational story about, you know, somebody who doesn't fit the norm overcoming um, a challenge and all the PR people that were in the room walked away with was that I had associated a brand, their brand or whatever brand, with this story that they saw as being negative, mm-hmm. you know? And so what happens is a lot of times um, people in my position, travel writers, travel bloggers, you know, trying to make it in the space, they shut up about those things because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to make people upset. They don't want to be misinterpreted. Um, they, they want work. You know, they right. want to be invited to these trips. And and so I have to say like that, that kind of, you know, shook me a little bit because I was like, oh, you know, obviously human nature. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what did I just do? Right. But then I'm like, you know, but that was a real story. And for that, you know, even though the PR people in the room were horrified, um, the the every person in the room that felt uh, in one way, whether it was because of hiking or whatever it may be, came up to me, you know, and was like, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, never has anybody shared something that I felt spoke to me and my experiences, my feelings and what I have been through. Um, as a travel writer, because there's a room full of travel writers, as a travel writer, going through these press trips, having these experiences, feeling like I'm left out, feeling like I'm being judged, feeling like I can't participate, you know? Yeah. So okay. it's sort of like this constant, for me, it's this constant balance of like, you know, how do I not get people so pissed off of me that they don't want to work with me? And then really telling something real and honest and raw and you know that that will inspire and motivate people so it's constant balance always you know I think that really comes out in your writing like for someone like me I'm a large woman who I'm not I never think of myself as a hiker so we don't really do it that often but Mm -hmm. then I see your photos and they're so beautiful and it looks like really wonderful experience to take my kids on that it's very encouraging that like I can go do this take the kids you don't have to be you know, like wear like the fashion look of being a hiker and like, you know, be really athletic. You don't have to be that to do that. And I think that I'm sure that's what so many of your readers get from it. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, like a couple of years ago, um, I worked a lot with the national parks foundation, um, because the truth is they're struggling 
you know, the, the, the demographic is changing so rapidly and the representation of who, you know, we are as a country is changing so rapidly. And it turns out that that growing demographic of minorities um, has never really been a focus for them. Um, I don't think it was intentional, you know what I mean? It's just right. never was focused. Right. And so now yeah. the numbers are coming out and they're like, oh my God, these, these are our future consumers and they don't visit us. They don't come out to us. They don't spend money with us. They don't stay with us. Um, they don't hike, they don't, you know? And um, so there was this really sort of desperate effort to how do we get them, you know, to come out to the boonies because that's where the national parks are um and and you know camp with us and spend money with us and take time to really explore us and fall in love with us because it's not just a money thing too it's a conservation thing right like you need people to fall in love with the parks to care enough about the parks to fight to protect them and conserve them um and so i worked with them um and the um, American Latino Heritage uh, Association associated with them. Um, and that was a problem, you know, because it, it's, it, that's the thing, you know, representation matters. You, you have to put the time and the effort and the money to showcase these people, because if I don't see people like myself, like you were just saying, you know, I mean, if I don't see people like myself represented in those things, then it doesn't even occur to me that it's somewhere I belong, somewhere I'm welcome, something I can do, um, do you know? Um, yeah, and I think, as you mentioned, feeling welcomed in it, you just recently wrote an eye-opening post called When You're a Nature Lover and of Color in America about taking your boys hiking at the Delaware Water Gap. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I... Um, yeah, we were, we, so I'm homeschooling my kids and I'm always constantly now, even more, just like when they were little, I reverted back to that experience. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for things to do with them, what to do with them. And so I was like, oh, the Delaware Water Gap is, I'm in Maplewood, New Jersey now. It's only an hour or so away. So that's a good place to go to go hiking. And um, we were so excited, the boys were so excited, and we enter Pennsyl- Pennsylvania and, uh, Everything's great, beautiful day. And then I see this truck um, kind of merge in front of me, and there's this big Confederate flag mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like right there in my face. And the welcome mat to your hike, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I got nervous. Um, yeah. I got nervous because, well, you know, we, the, the Confederate flag, the symbol, the history, everything, it's always something that has made me nervous in general, but especially now in these political times that we're living in, um, it's even more, people feel so much more emboldened. And so it's, you don't know, you never know, you know, and, um, I got really nervous and I didn't, you know, I, it's a shaky feeling inside that you just feel it's, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a little, like, it's a fear, you know? And, so I was like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna experience? I'm going into the woods <laughs> with my kids. Um, and I realized so many things. I realized, one, how often I use my husband who's white um, as a crutch to get through these moments. Um, you know, I don't literally hide behind him, but in a way, psychologically, I kind of do. I always feel like as long as he's with me, 
you know, this white guy, Mm -hmm. um, people will either look at me and say, well, I I, I mean, these are these are honest thoughts, I think. Well, he's with she's with him. So she must be okay. You know, (laughs) she's with him. So somehow and they have kids. So somehow, you know, she she must be one of the good ones. Um, one of the acceptable ones, you know, one that doesn't cause any trouble or which my husband would totally disagree with, by the way. He was <laughs> like, oh, she is the first one to, you know, <laughs> in her mouth. Um, but, but you know, it's so I, I, I realized I wasn't with him. And if something happened, not that I wouldn't have been able to fend for myself, but just something would have, could have happened because he wasn't there to, block it or stop it you know but, and so this- I mean the nervousness was probably amplified also because your kids were with you right like exactly. when I was reading your piece I like I just felt that as a parent that like and then they picked up on it you mentioned that in the piece right that they yeah they because it. towards the end um I would go on a hike and everything and uh towards the we were coming back home but they were hungry mm-hmm. um so we so we had to stop at a diner close to the to you know the area that I was in whatever, and in the car you know you know how your mom is always like okay guys you know don't don't be loud whatever right. I've taken that to the next level right I was, <laughs> don't be loud don't like even don't be loud make yourself unheard right. try to be seen don't uh. you're not from here don't cause any trouble like come on guys come on yeah. keep right. it together you right. know. And then they're like, why are you freaking out? Yeah. Because what you're not saying is safe, right? Right. Right. Yeah. The little one was like, what's wrong with this place? That's exactly what he said to me. (laughs) Where are you taking us? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's interesting as you talk about the role of media, because obviously, like, as you mentioned, getting looks from people on the path, like, they also haven't had any media that shows people of color in the woods, in nature. Like, the fact that, like, you know, your boys aren't seeing it in their media, but the people who you're encountering on these hikes haven't, like, it's just not part of the culture around hiking. And Mm -hmm. the... I would love to hear your thoughts on sort of like how media can help to change that perception, especially as you talk about the national parks. Yeah, it really is as simple as creating marketing content that is inclusive and diverse. That's it. I I mean, I can tell you my nine-year-old who who by the way is like the blonde green eye whitest <laughs> little kid ever you know um i had to if i hadn't seen him come out of me i would have sworn they <laughs> him at birth. but um he he will say like oh there's wow mom look there's some brown person here that's not something he you know I mean I don't I've never I'm not like oh my goodness guys take up you know like let's celebrate you know throw the confetti it's just but they notice um, enough to make comments about it and so and it doesn't have to be I hate when they do like an all you know like all black campaign you know right it's it's really just you know if you're gonna have a group of people photographed doing something just look at the group and make sure that 
you know, it represents the community that you want to reach out to. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really that simple. Um, people like me notice that stuff. I notice when a person of color walks into a room mm-hmm. um, in a room that's primarily white. I notice that. I might, you know, not say anything, but I'm like, hey, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you. as an Indian, like, I, th- I can remember going to places and my parents being like, oh, there's another Indian there. And we would always, like, roll our eyes. But, like, we had noticed that, yeah, another <laughs> Indian family had, like, walked in, but we would give our parents a hard time. But it was like, they they were like, hey, there's someone that looks like us. And we were probably and doing so the same because, thing. Yeah, I will talk to, like, people you know white people and they're like oh i don't notice that i'm like really because i know that when i take my husband's i took my husband to um a restaurant in harlem that i was reviewing and you know he he came with me it was a sunday brunch and we walked into the room and we're there for like 10 15 minutes and my husband's like i'm the only white guy here i'm like yes (laughs) welcome You notice this, you know? I love when you talk about that travel travel right. writer who that describing Japan to you. Yeah. It's like, oh my god! Imagine being the only white person. Right. Yes. Yeah, and then there was like this pregnant pause when you were like waiting for her to like realize that you yeah. were the only Latino person yeah. in this room, and it's it just never came. Thirty more more than thirty more than thirty people were in this room, <laughs> and they were American and British media. Right. So it wasn't just American. Right. So American right. and British media. And, yeah, and I was the only person of color. The only person of I mean, I'm talking, there were no Asians. There were, like, this is it. Um, I'm carrying the weight of all minorities in this, this situation. Oh my that, God. I better behave, right? Um, yeah, and uh, she was lovely lady. But, yeah, she, she was talking to me. I, she, my, my kid, my, my 11-year-old, is obsessed with Japanese culture. And so I, I hope to one day be able to afford to take him there. And so I was talking to her about it, just curious, like, what do you think? How difficult is it to get around? And, you know, do I need somebody to, to, to go with me that speaks Japanese? Blah, whatever. Um, yeah, and her thing was, like, how overwhelmingly... Um, distracting and and frustrating and just everything it was to be the only one. Can you imagine? She said. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, I love that so much. <laughs> where you are the only one, and I'm like, mm, eh. like really? Just try to put yourself in that situation. <laughs> I mean, can just you really, imagine. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love the cluelessness of right. that. <laughs> right, I love that that one. I, I actually wanted to take a step back. You talked about how sort of travel bloggers, there aren't too, too many travel bloggers, if any, that, that look like you. But really also, you know, you mentioned when you were growing up in a, in a, um, in a family with um, your uh, grandparents who were immigrants from here, a very conservative household. Being a travel blogger is not of you know a very conservative thing to do. How was that sort of perceived um, by your family, and sort of has have you had an effect on on sort of maybe making them a little bit more willing to be a little bit more adventurous? Um. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, um. I think that I can say like for my my mom, for example. A lot of the comments that I would get would be like, um, and I could hear her in Spanish in my head right now. Um, 
who my mom is like super supportive by the way she just sorry that's my dog she just loves everything I do and and whatever and she tries not to judge me because I have such a strong personality mm-hmm. that she's kind of figured out oh, wait this isn't I don't want to do this with her right. <laughs> which is great but but she still you know still letting mom so she's like you you know you're never home like you're always you know you're always out <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's this thing like I'm always out, and and you know who's take you know like who's who's cooking and cleaning and you know oh. giving your man attention. Uh-oh. What's happening here? Um, yeah, so I think that for you know I have siblings, and I think at the end it's just a, it's it's a lot of it. No matter how much I do it and how much people see me do it, of course my my siblings think it's awesome. Um, I have a sister who who's been traveling a lot more. Um, and so on, but I think that it has to be sort of like ingrained in you a little bit from a very young age, or at least it helps to give that to make travel a priority. Mm-hmm. You know, if that if you don't see it as a, if it's not considered a priority in your life, then you just spend your money on other things, right? You just do other things with your time and with your money. And so I don't know. I think that I have a lot of siblings who like to travel, but I think that I also have some that would would easily spend their money on something else before they think about oh my gosh i haven't gone anywhere this year you know i haven't whatever i haven't taken a vacation in three years or um and that's just the you know that's just part of how we grew up i know that with my husband i my husband when we first got married and he threw the idea of us doing a road trip together i just kept going back to this idea of this one time my my father wanted so badly to do the American thing, which was rent an RV and drive through the country or whatever, mm-hmm. Florida in this case. And, oh, my God, it was the most horrible experience, right? Because he didn't know what the heck he was doing. Um, and so... <laughs> it's not so easy to just hop in an RV and go. <laughs> yeah, start an RV with your Dominican parents to Florida, that drive from New York to Florida is the worst drive I've ever, I hate that drive. Um, (laughs) You know, and so when my husband was like road trip, I was like, oh, oh no, I'm an adult now. I get to say this is not happening. Right, right. (laughs) But luckily, you know, he changed my mind and we, we, you know, we, we drove to Montana and it was the first time I'd ever seen the Rocky Mountains and um, been to a national park and you know, I was what I was 33 years old before that happened. So, you know, it, he, it took him, someone like him to, to change me really. Yeah. Um, and again, I think a lot of us also uh, like my, I know speaking for my family and a lot of people, um, fall within that thing where if you're not going to Italy or France or it's not really travel, like, you know, and so then you don't go because how expensive is that, right? right. I know that takes me back to the $300 cupcakes, right? Like I see a lot of people's travel pictures. I'm like, oh, that looks really nice. <laughs> My friends who have like the Thai hut with elephants walking by and like amazing things. It's like, no, no. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, and for a long time, it's changing now. I think because so many of us have been, well, it's changing now, but it used to be that um, when I first started, um, 
the really cool travel people were the ones that were like traveling around the world, quitting their jobs and, mm -hmm. you know, taking on this life and whatever. And then there were these people like me that were like, come on, that's not, you know, all that there is to it. But that's all the media loved and that's all that was ever promoted. And that's those were the big, you know, those were the ones with the millions of followers and the million likes and, and mm -hmm. whatever. And then what ended up happening is they started getting married and they started having babies. And all of a sudden, those people that were like, quit your job, travel the world, were like, I think there's value in settling down. I think the beauty of you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly what has happened. That's exactly what I've seen. Um, you know, I've been a mom since I was 27 years old. I'm 45. So I, I feel so many times like that person, um, you know, the, the old the old guy, get off my lawn, you know. Like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, but you see it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's funny to watch, but it's also, I'm like, good, you know, I'm glad that, you know, these people are growing older. Um, and growing up and kind of changing their tune a little bit so that more people, you know, can see value and travel in other ways. For sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. You also, you mentioned homeschooling your kids now. Can you talk about how that has affect how you think about travel? Um, well, I, I, um, yeah, this was, a, we started doing it this summer just because I wanted to make sure that it was going to work for us. We weren't going to kill each other. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been really great. Um, well, basically, I had to, before I just made the final decision I, that I was going to do it, I had to basically decide what, what, if I was willing to take on the risk, I guess, of having, you know, of not being able to go on these press trips um, that I used to go on by myself, um, and and basically say no even more than I already was saying to travel because I want to travel with my kids. Um, there are family travel bloggers, and I'm not, you know, passing judgment or saying that it's right or wrong or whatever. That's really like the brands are the ones that need to figure out that whole thing. But there are family travel bloggers that if you invite them somewhere, um, they will insist on their children's airfare being paid for, all of the activities for their children being paid for, you know. The, their expenses as the writer, but also their children's expenses because Ooh. because their children, whatever, because they write about it with their children. And so I, in that sense, I'm a little old school. Um, again, I come from public relations. And so in that sense, I'm a little old school where I feel like if I'm working on a campaign or you're inviting me to travel, um, I won't insist, I won't demand, I won't think it's my right that my children are paid for unless you say, I want your children, you know, part of it, part of the right. agreement. We want your children to be a part of the story. We want you to film yourself with your kids or whatever. That's a different situation. Um, but if it's something like we would like you to come here, um, then I will ask, can I bring my children? You know, is it okay if I bring my children? Um, to me, oftentimes, the fact that they will get me a room large enough for my family um, and make whatever, you know, restaurant reservations or whatever to include my family, I'm happy to take on that expense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so it, it's you know obviously it's more expensive <laughs> um so that's one thing that has changed i've i've not been going to a lot of press trips a lot of the travel we're going to be traveling all of next month a lot of that travel is out of out of pocket for me um nothing i just have to like you know it makes me a little bit more proactive in my content writing um i have to pitch it more um be more creative in what i can offer people so that hopefully they will pay me more or cover my family but yeah it's you just start thinking about how can i continue to do this um you know and still make a living out of it it's a yeah. it's a freelance juggle i think in right. right that's what i was going to say you you it's a lot to juggle and it's a lot of balls in the air for sure it's challenging mm-hmm. But I think it's been interesting reading, like, as you educate your kids on the trips, like, how much yeah. you educate your reader. Like, um, your post about taking your boys to the Dominican Republic, I thought, right. was just fascinating Fantastic. from a historical perspective. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. But, you know, like, I think, if you want to talk about that a little bit, the trip to yeah. the Dominican Republic seems really special in terms of how you approach travel. Mm-hmm. Like it's so educational, like and wonderful. Well, it's it's um the that um that company was so generous. Um, Phantom Travel was so so generous. They covered all of our expenses, and um, it was just really incredible. I mean, there were a couple of things that I did on my own, but for you know the the bulk of it, they were like absolutely you know bring your kids, whatever. Um, so that was really, really generous and kind. Um, but I had to also make a decision, right, very, very early on, what kind of travel story um, I was gonna, t- I was gonna tell. And it was really great having the experience before we went. We arrived to the Dominican Republic. The what they do because we're doing volunteer work. Um, they're really great in that they get the people together. All of the um, and it wasn't all media. There were a lot of like people, private sort of tourists, travelers. Um, and they were like, okay, well, we started one of the mornings with a group just getting together, trying to talk about the what people can expect to see when we arrive to the island. And one of them, obviously, was the poverty that people immediately will see. And one woman, um, which I loved, I love that she felt comfortable enough to bring this up in the group. I love that she, you know, we were a place where she felt safe enough to say that she was like, well, what if they, what if they feel like express hostility towards us because of what we have and they don't have, um, you know? And so it's this perception of what poverty is and quality of life for people. I've been there. I've been very poor um, when I was a, a child, and then, and then eventually as a teenager, very wealthy because of my dad's work. Um, so I've had both extremes and, you know, so it, it was really interesting for me to kind of get that I have my own perceptions that sometimes you think, oh, it's just me in my head, but it's so nice to always hear what other people are thinking and sort of validating what you see. Um, and so that's kind of like how I wanted to write my story, just kind of expressing to people, look, this is what poverty is and isn't, or this is how you may perceive it, but this is how other people feel it or don't feel it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I have to say, even though, you know, the brand was really, really great and um, 
and and, and it was I, I I got a lot of positive feedback from that story. That wasn't something that the brand promoted mm-hmm. in their space. Do you know? Like I made a yeah. video, yeah. so I, I I had and I knew that going in. I knew that that wasn't gonna be something that they were like. This is what Girl Gone Travel wrote about her experience with us. <laughs> Some visit the poverty of the Dominican Republic. <laughs> they never promoted that, you know? They so because of because I knew that that would happen, I also created a video that was more marketing friendly. That was more like, "Wee, look at us," you know? Mm-hmm. Um and that they loved and that they promoted. Um it's such an interesting fine point for people who read blogs to understand like how much PR can shape the stories, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's great that you find space to do both things. Yeah, I, I just for me it was it's it's always I feel I do feel it. I do feel like it's always a risk. Um but you know it's uh it was an important story. There's a lot going on in the Dominican Republic with the Haitian community. Um there's a lot going on with you know, the haves and the have nots and how the poor are treated there. Um, it's, and and because I speak Spanish and, and because this is the country of my family, I couldn't come back. It was just, it would have been such an irresponsible reaction and response to come back and just be like, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, without addressing those very serious, very real things. And and obviously, without making my children aware of their roots, their backgrounds, why things are the way they are. Um, otherwise, you know, growing up in DR, when I when my dad did have a lot of money, and I got, they would be no better than a lot of the kids that I went to high school with that, you know, were rich families and, you know, treated the maids like second class citizens. And, you know, that's not who I want my children to be. In yeah. life. So. I, I love that DR piece. I, I love the part where when you were on the bus and they were talking about um, sort of this is the first synagogue and then oh sort of yeah. you're you sort of finishing the story, which was obviously, you know, it was really fascinating to me and uh, made me want to sort of Google it and understand it. And then um, later in the piece when you talked about, um, I think you were talking to someone and she pointed to the kids and we're sort of like, oh, but they're not Dominican. And both right. your kids immediately were like, no, we're Dominican. We're Dominican, which I think as a parent probably sort of warmed your heart. But it was just um, it was I just love the the piece for that. And, and we'll definitely link to it when um, when we send out the, the newsletter and the show notes. But um, I, I've, I really in, in enjoyed that. I think um, the history erasure stuff, I think Amy has sort of touched on this and we talked about it last week when we were talking about, um, now the movie name is escaping me, uh, that talks about oh, this hidden figures, hidden figures. Um, and so, you know, this was a, a great example of that where the tour guide was sort of talking about something and you sort of like, were like, well, I think you need to hear the whole story. So, um, and, yeah. And it was like, something that she, she was aware of. Yeah. But she, right. She was like, well, these are tourists and we want to put our best foot forward. We don't want to share our dirty laundry. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's you you have to sometimes, you know, you have to. I, I mean, when you don't, it just exactly it rewrites history. Um, yeah. It rewrites history and in a really bad way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, to give the listeners context, it was that Rafael Trujillo like helped Jewish refugees escape the Nazis. So and it was so exciting. Wonderful, they were like, right? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. What a good guy. What? <laughs> what a guy. I'm like, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in the meantime, you know, he was like slaughtering so many Haitians. Right. And and taking land away from Dominican black Dominicans to give to the Jewish refugees because he all that's all he wanted. He wanted, you know, he wanted the 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 society to be and listen, I and I and I talked about this, I talk about it often. My you know, my grandfather worked in his army. Um, he baptized my dad. I mean this is a man who I've never met, obviously I'm not that old, but he influenced and still influenced a lot of the Dominican mentality, you mm-hmm. know? And wow. When yeah. I married, you know, when I went up, showed up to the Dominican Republic with my, with my husband, my dad was like, pulled me to the side and he's like, good job, good job on lightening the race. That's, you know, you- Oh, really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's, it's very much a part and, and, but at the same time, you know, my dad, who by the way is dark as dark, if not darker than I am, um, his, when he got mad at me, when he wanted to send the message home that I was not representing the best of me, he would say, you know, you're behaving, you know, like an end. You're just, you're be, this is your this these this these end tendencies that you have in you um, are coming out and you're allowing them to kind of control this situation you're not putting your best foot forward um, so you know it it, it influences um, everything you watch right. the watch the um, any Latin American beauty contest <laughs> like Miss Dominican Republic I swear to God I don't know. Dominicans that look like these women. They're like super thin, straight hair, white, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh-huh. but they are what the country wants to represent them. These are things that are heavily ingrained in um, our society. And I feel like if people, you know, want to say like, I've been to the Dominican Republic, if you really want to say you've been there, then you have to be there. And a part of it is knowing you know where you've been and why things are the way they are why why when you go to a certain part of the country a lot of the people are light-skinned and rich and yet when you go to another part of the country a lot of people are black and poor like there's Mm -hmm. a reason for this the perception is the same in in india sort of about um skin color and and the idea of being as fair as you can be um, there's quite a few lotions and creams on the market that claim to make your skin fairer. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a historical thing that's ingrained and it needs to be discussed, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Carol, how do things change for you as you travel internationally? Like, are there countries where you're like, you feel really at home or, or countries where you feel like you're still sort of sticking out? Um, I, um, I will say that... You know, whenever I travel anywhere, um, I say m- maybe Europe or whatever. Whenever I travel anywhere, honestly, Asia even, um, I'm always a, um, I'm hyper aware of 
of how people might see me um, because of this stereotype, right, of what a person of color coming into any situation could potentially be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and they might not know that. I'm Latina, and they might not know that. Um, but I'm definitely brown. They don't really know where, you know, where I'm from. I mean, I've been to Mexico, and I remember arriving, and I, that was a place, when I first went to Mexico, that was a place where I was like, you know, eh, my people, even though I'm not Mexican, but, you know, just the whole <laughs> language thing, right? And I remember arriving, and they had, you know, the host had, like, a shuttle waiting for me, Um and I arrive, and I'm like talking to the guy in Spanish, and he looks at me. He's like, "Why do you speak Spanish?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm Dominican." <laughs> and he's like, "I've never met a black person that speaks Spanish before." Hmm. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of history on the whole black Mexican thing too. Um, but you know, so, and so in that situation where I came in, and I'm like, you know, whatever, uh, this is, I'm I'm good. I'm with my people immediately, right? Somebody was like, wow, I've never seen somebody like you before. Um, So then all of a sudden, I'm like, shit. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) okay, I'm the other in here again. Um, Mm -hmm. But no, I'm I'm constantly, I'm constantly hyper aware of it because um, a lot of places I go, like I'll I'll go to the countryside. I I don't always go to the cities where there's a little bit more diversity and awareness and stuff. So I do a lot of like, for example, work with um, tourism of France every year and I to do wine stories for them, which means going into the country, mm-hmm. um, to the countryside. And so, yeah, I always enter those situations just, you know, like I think I think every person of color is like this. You enter a situation just really hoping for the best, right? You're like, oh, let's make this awesome. <laughs> um, and not, you know, I won't say scared, not not necessarily scared, just like I know that I'm different, right? So let's just make this awesome anyway. <laughs> um, um, so far, I think the fact that I speak French not beautifully, but, you know, I I can have a conversation. That sort of helps to break down a little bit of right. the whatever barrier. I think if I came in there and I was like, hey, what's up? You know, they would be like, I'm doing that. Um, you know, then I would have the American thing against me, right? Right. right. But yeah, so I just I try really really hard, and I think I think a lot of minorities do. Um, we try, however, in whatever in whatever situation, in whether it be in learning a different language or dressing a certain way or behaving a certain way or making sure you sound a certain way, whatever it may be, I try really really hard to, in my case, um, have a strong cultural. Uh, knowledge, um, whether in language or, or information or whatever, that I can deliver right off the bat so that they know that I came in here totally prepared, totally willing to give them their respect and, you know, I don't know, just putting myself like I am at your, you know, your service, like I'm here to, to, to promote you and work with you and I'm so turned, you know, very grateful. I'm always like so grateful, so, so grateful, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, it's kind of amazing because travel can be stressful enough. The fact that you have to do the, all this heavy lifting right. besides on top of like all the usual travel planning and stress and sleep deprived and, you yeah. know. When you think about like, for example, you know, they talk about the quote unquote ugly American. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a matter, it's a, it's a privilege thing, right? Um, an ugly American, the stereotypical ugly American is a male Midwestern, let's say, you know, male, white, mid, uh, middle-aged person. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it could be a young, but they're always white is basically mm-hmm. the problem. Right. Thing. They're always white. Um, and there's this sense of entitlement and privilege that they carry, They this stereotype, I'm not generalizing, but I'm saying like this stereotype carries with them into everywhere they go. Right, because they have this privilege and entitlement at home, they're able to carry that everywhere they go. And so, no matter where they go, um, they're demanding and they're disrespectful and they're like, "Speak English!" and "Why doesn't anybody speak oh. English here?" And, you know. <laughs> and so they have this, you know, they walk the world, right, wherever they may travel with this sense of entitlement. Why is the food not delivered? Why am I not getting? You know, my bags aren't in my room. Why? You know, like this thing. Um, As a person of color who comes from an environment already in the States where you're constantly being watched, you're constant, people are always kind of waiting for you to be the loud Dominican or the, you know, obnoxious New Yorker or Mm -hmm. the educated black person, whatever it may be. You already, I, I already carry that with me everywhere I go here. So it's going to be, when I go abroad, that's going to be taken to the next level, you know, in my mind. And so it's not that I'm not vocal and it's not that I'm not myself and it's not that I, you know, present this false person of who I am, but I revert to like what I tell my kids, right? Be the best that you can be. Like represent (laughs) the better side of you, right? Um, Yeah. So the impression that they walk away with if they've never met a Dominican, if they've never, they're not really used to being around people of color. The impression that I leave with them is that I'm not like that. You know, mm-hmm. I want, I want, when you think, when you see another person of color, hopefully um, you will remember me and how I behaved. Mm-hmm. And, or when you see media representing us in a certain way, you can say, well, I met this girl and she, she's not like that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's the same way I can come back and, you know, I came back from, from Germany and all my, all my, you know, a lot of my friends of color were like, what happened over there? How did they treat you? I'm like, you know, they were great. Um, you know, I'm sure there are the skinheads and, <laughs> and they're all, right. all these things. But I didn't meet them. Um, they didn't accost me in the street and um, everyone that I did meet was absolutely lovely so we have this exchange of of um, percep- you know like new perceptions right mm-hmm. based on who we deliver and who we present ourselves to be and so that's as a travel writer yes I, I'm always aware of the fact that I, I know exactly immediately where people are going to see what I'm, I whether or not they have these perceptions I always assume that they will and then I try to make sure to do whatever I can to change them or, you know, lay new ground for what they ambition it 
to be. I hope for our listeners, like anyone who's trying to decide if they have privilege, you know, I feel like white people understanding white privilege has been surprisingly difficult to tackle. Maybe it's not surprising. But like to listen to you talk, it's like, okay, when I travel, do I have to think about that whole laundry list of things before I enter a room? And if the answer is no, it's like, welcome (laughs) to your privilege. Right. 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 Um, And I think, too, for, like, the media creators listening, like, as we represent people in our shows or our games or our movies, like, how we represent people matters in this conversation, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as somebody somebody who speaks um, a different language, um, I hear words in a different way, a certain way sometimes, and I think the topic of white privilege was something that was introduced to me as a topic, you know, not that long ago. Um, And um, I think what kills people and what people hear is the word privilege. And then they're like, well, I don't have any privilege. Look where I live. And, you know, you know, because that's all they hear. I've got bills to pay. I've got bills to pay. What? Um, (laughs) And so it's almost like the terminology um, messes it up a little bit because people don't want to hear and you put the word privilege there and they just uh, take it to what that word means um, in terms of you know material things I it's guess. like a loaded it's like a loaded word you're saying it's yeah. such a loaded word yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm so- just gonna bring I'm gonna bring Carol on to do the white privilege person <laughs> whenever we like have a topic on it I'm like don't you think and then Carol- <laughs> exactly I'm just gonna play that sound but um, no that, that makes a lot of sense um and like you said, Amy, it's a real simple checklist. Do you have to think about these things? If the answer is no, <laughs> there's your answer. Yeah. Yes. Here's yeah. some privilege. But then, you know, but then it's hard to even talk about them as a person of color, too, because then you'll have those same people that are like, well, why are you so paranoid? And why, you know, why do you make everything about race? And why do you... um, Whatever. And I always like to tell people, listen, I didn't wake up this morning, and, and this is true, most of my days, um, I didn't wake up unless my husband is like, man, I love the way your curly hair looks today. I'm like, ah, oh, geez. But I don't wake up every morning um, thinking, all right, let me, let me, I'm brown and I'm about to <laughs> take this world by, you know, no, I don't, you know. <laughs> right. I, like, I think like every person, whether you're a person who's fat or, I mean, I mean, unless you're severely disabled, that it's constantly a present thing. But unless you're someone who's overweight or somebody who's of color or somebody who has, you know, really like um, crappy hair that you have to kind of try to like, you know, like me, I have to kind of work up my curls. But, um, you know, you don't wake up immediately aware of these things. Something happens, either you look at yourself in the mirror and something happens, or you go out into the world and, like, so many times, I'll just go out for coffee, you know? Mm-hmm. And be like, where were you? You have such a great tan! <laughs> and I'm just like... Uh, you know, and it doesn't insult me. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying it's insulting or it makes me feel bad. I'm just saying that up to that moment, all I was probably worrying about was whether, I don't know. Like, you know, is the coffee ready? Well, yeah, that's what you were worrying wear, about. 
like I, I can guarantee that most of the time when I'm heading to the coffee shop is usually on a Saturday and I'm my biggest concern is do I have to wear a bra? Can I get away <laughs> you know, like can I get away with just wearing this sweatshirt and nobody will see anything? Like seriously, that is mostly what I'm thinking about. <laughs> you know, we were just putting a ponytail on and now You weren't getting the placards ready, ready to fight <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I'm thinking, can I get away with this bun? Will it look too whatever? Can I need to wear a bra you know is it cold like whatever and then you get to the coffee shop and somebody will be like you have such a great tan and you're like ah oh, shit that's right like i'm brat like i'm a black person i gotta like yes you know um i would like my coffee like me maybe a little lighter you know, <laughs> you know? but that's the thing so it's not that i carry it on my you know, um, I have this chip on my shoulder, right, you know, right, the world that right. I live in and, um, and something will always happen that will remind me of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I even think as we look for source material for our podcast, like as we go like week to week, it's like, what if we don't come up with anything? Oh, here are 30 things that we can talk about. <laughs> and then it could apply to anything, right? Like if I go to Home Depot alone, you know, and I'm starting to look at tubes, people are like, you know, like pipes and crap you know people are gonna be like well will your husband be help you know like oh yeah i'm a woman in home depot you know it's just so many different aspects of life so many layers where you're reminded of you know who you are and your place in this world exactly well i feel before we let you go we would be remiss in not asking for like can you give us like one or two great like these are places you should take your family at some point um I would I, first. I would recommend that wherever people may live, to do to go to the tourism website for wherever they live, um, because there will be huge, you know, huge lists of resources um, of what to do. You know, that's how I find out where all the cool things are. Is I go to the tourism board and I find out what's happening. You know, what are the cool things happening in my area? Where should I go? Where where are they telling the other people to go? Is where I'm going to go. Right. Um, so where That's a great live, suggestion. Like, <laughs> go to the tourism website and of where you live and see what's cool and what's happening and, you know, figure out an itinerary from there. Um, and then, again, I, I'm really big on... I, I we love like I said I, we love hiking we love being outdoors and I'm really big on whether you consider yourself a hiker or not to just go to a state park or a national park some are closer to some people than others um, it's not expensive you don't have to drop you know a month's salary at REI um, you don't even have to do like the really big big hikes and uh, take you know to go out there if even if you don't have kids I always feel that. For me, when I go out um, into nature, I feel like I can connect with myself. I a lot of the stress is just relieved. I feel like I'm inspired in so many different ways. I'm motivated in so many different ways, um, and there's a really feel-good kind of sense to everything. And I and of course, I know that if I feel that with all of the you know the the burden of being an adult. If I can still walk away from that experience feeling amazing, then my kids who haven't even begun to feel <laughs> you know, the hardship of growing up yet, um, and the way I have, 
they'll walk away even more inspired. And so it's a really, it's an incredible gift um, right. to just be outdoors, um, to pass that along to your kids and to, to give that to yourself without, you know, it's not something that has to be super expensive or require a week's vacation or anything like that. Absolutely. Well, I encourage all of our listeners, please check out Girl Gone Travel. Amazing writing, amazing photography from the awesome Carol thank Kane. You. Carol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank Carol. You this guys. is great. Thank you. Thank Take you. Care. Me too.